Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Consciousness Review. I'm Miriam Knight, and our guest today is Dr. Alan Botkin. He's a doctor of psychology who worked for 20 years at a VA hospital and specialized in treating PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, among combat veterans. Dr. Botkin and his colleagues were among the first in the country to regularly use EMDR, or eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, a procedure that dramatically improved the effectiveness of their therapy. In 1995, he discovered quite by accident that a variation of EMDR reliably induced after-death communications. Uh, and since then, he and his colleagues have induced many thousands of these after-death communications, or ADCs, um, and a number of them are described in his new book. Well, actually, it's a reprint of his book, Induced After-Death Communication, A Miraculous Therapy for Grief and Loss. This is such a fascinating book. I am delighted to welcome Dr. Alan Botkin. Al, Welcome. Thanks, Miriam. Thanks for having me. Now, induced after-death communication, or IADC, since it's such a mouthful, seems to be a real breakthrough in the fields of grief and trauma therapy. Can you please describe for us what EMDR is and how you discovered the IADC variation or technique that you now teach? Okay. Um, there's, there's going to be, uh, I'll make this answer as short as possible, but it's going to be somewhat long. Um, it, uh, in the, probably around 1991 or so, I was working on the uh, inpatient PTSD unit at, at a local VA here, and we had been using this, the standard treatments in the field, um, but to be honest, they weren't doing much good for our patients, and... Um, and it was a very grueling job, um, uh, especially for our patients, when the idea was to get them to talk about their traumatic memories, and hopefully over time, um, if they were able to talk about those traumatic memories in a safe and supportive you know, kind of environment, they would, the emotional intensity would diminish over time. Um, that was the prevailing theory at the time. Um, however, when patients did talk about their uh, traumatic events during the day, they were up all night, and if they did fall asleep, they had nightmares of the event they talked about that day and so on. Mm -hmm. And they very... were patients at the time, right? Pardon? They were inpatients at the yes, time. they were inpatients. These are guys with pretty severe PTSD. Mm -hmm. And then something came out called eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And the discoverer and developer of that procedure is a psychologist named Francine Shapiro. And when we first heard about the technique, we laughed at it. We thought it sounded silly because uh, um, when doing this EMDR procedure, you have the patient bring up a certain aspect of their traumatic memory. And at the same time, you the therapist moves his or her hands in front of the face um, uh, of the patient in a back and forth kind of way, so the patient tracks uh, with his eyes, um, you know, the left right movement of the therapist's hands. And what uh, Dr. Shapiro reported was um, 
was really rather amazing. She got results that were really unheard of in the field of uh, trauma work. But anyway, even though we laughed at it and thought it sounded silly, and we thought we knew better, we were at least open and open-minded enough to give it a try. And the very first time we tried it, um, even before we officially uh, were trained in EMDR, which we soon were after that, um, we were able to achieve results right away um, with patients that we had never been able to um, uh, to, to get those kind of results with. Um, now, how is it that a patient uh, moving his eyes, and I, I say his because we, we were working with all male veterans at that point, um, uh, how, how can that help somebody process a traumatic memory? And really the best theory going at the time, and there's some good science behind it now. In fact, there's a lot of neuroscience behind, behind EMDR at this point. But it, it um, apparently um, uh, had something to do with dream or REM sleep. When we are asleep and dreaming at night, our brains are processing and integrating information more rapidly and efficiently than when we're awake. And it's, it was known for some time that that's why when people dream, they move, they dart their eyes back and forth, which is why dream sleep is also called rapid eye movement or REM sleep. Apparently, um, this discovery of EMDR um, seemed to indicate that you could take a fully awake person and you can get that patient to move his eyes in a similar fashion, it actually put the, the brain, their brain into a higher processing mode, and we could use it in people who were wide awake. And unlike dreaming, um, other parts of the brain remained active, um, like the frontal lobes and you know our executive functions and so on, which are generally turned off when we're asleep. So this increased processing and integration allowed the brain to work um, at, at a much higher level in terms of integrating and processing horrible, horrible traumatic memories. And we found that after um, sometimes a single session, patients would say things like, you know, Doc, this is the first time um, since Vietnam, let's say, that... Um, you know, when I think about the event, it doesn't feel like it's happening all over again. It feels mm -hmm. like it happened a long time ago and that it's finally over. And that's sort of the hallmark of a traumatic memory is you just don't remember it. Um, you also relive the moment. And even though it may have been many decades in the past. So this EMDR was knocking out that reliving component and patients were reporting in a, a tremendous amount of relief. So. I had been doing this for some time, and um, uh, I found that some of the uh, steps in the standard EMDR protocol didn't make any sense to me. I thought they were irrelevant or um, and so on. So I experimented with a, a good number of variations on the standard EMDR procedure, and most of my, while most of my ideas didn't work, I hit, a, I hit upon a few that seemed to make um, the procedure work even better, um, more rapidly and more efficiently. And after having made these changes, and my patients were getting even more rapid results, um, something very strange happened that I didn't understand when it first happened. 
and one of the changes I made to standard EMDR was that patients, I had my patients close their eyes after every set of eye movement I gave them. But anyway, um, after I had processed um, the, the main components of the traumatic memory and I gave my patients another set of eye movement and they closed their eyes, they began reporting these after-death communications. And the very first time that happened, I thought uh, my patient had hallucinated. I didn't know what an after-death communication was at the time. And I was very concerned for this person who literally left my office joyous after going through a horrendous traumatic memory. Um, I alerted the, the night shift staff to keep an eye on this guy. I was worried about him. I thought maybe he had psychologically decompensated and hallucinated. Mm -hmm. And I found out right away the next day when I came back in that not only did he do fine, he slept for eight hours that night and was still joyous about his experience. So, wow. um, and then I uh, found out that a few of my other patients um, uh, were having the same kind of experience with their losses. And then I went back and looked at my notes and finally figured out what it was that I was doing differently with people who had the experience and people who didn't have the experience. So then I um, uh, changed the procedure once again and added a new element, which then uh, allowed uh, nearly all of my patients to have the ADC experience. One, you know, and as a psychologist, my only interest is in uh, healing people. Um, I have sort of stayed away from the debates over our, uh, over the issue of uh, whether near-death experiences and after-death communications, you know, and so on, are, um, are proof of an afterlife and so on. Um, I've sort of stayed out of that, and, but I can tell you one thing I knew for sure is that these experiences were healing my patients in ways that um, were not even thought to be possible. Well, I'm certainly That's not going to let you off the hook on that conversation, but we can we can gently work our way into it. Okay. Uh, how how is this different from rapid eye motion? Um, uh, rapid, rapid eye movement movement therapy, yeah. Rapid eye movement therapy. There is there is something called rapid eye movement. Maybe yes. it's just a variation on the theme. Um, yes, there are a couple folks uh, across the country, two that I'm aware of, who um, basically took my procedure and kind of renamed it. I see. Now, you, you make a, a big point of differentiating this from hypnosis. How is it different? Well, first of all, um, if one is old enough, like I am, um, we remember stage hypnotists who would get up and dangle a watch and move a watch back and forth in front of the subject's eyes, and then they, uh, the hypnotist would give the person a suggestion like, uh, you know, you're a chicken, and then they'd walk around the stage like walking like a chicken and so on. Um, that's why um, people often ask, is, 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 is EMDR or is IADC, is, uh, or these eye movement therapies, do they have anything to do with hypnosis? Um, and the answer is no. And in fact, they are the opposite. 
um, and uh, EEG studies that you know take a look at brain waves and so on support that idea. In hypnosis, people get into a very relaxed, focused, and highly suggestible state. Um, um, you know, along with that slower brainwave activity. And in fact, EMDR brain activity is the same as normal waking consciousness. It really doesn't change. And I, um, many of us even suspect it even, um, as I mentioned before, allows the brain to process even more rapidly. That's fascinating. Are you familiar with the work of, the, of Robert Monroe at the Monroe Institute in Virginia? Yes, I am. Yes, I am, and I'm familiar with his hemisync, mm-hmm. and that is um, very interesting to me in a theoretical way. Um, I think, though, that beyond the, the, the left-right brain kind of stimulation that goes with bilateral stimulation, you know, auditory, you know, p- people who do EMDR work with the eyes, um, primarily, but you can also tap people's hands alternately, and some some people who undergo EMDR use headphones with alternating clicks and so on. So it, there does seem to be some similarity there, but the, but the procedure and the direction that it's taken um, uh, is very different, and, and and the goals of both approaches are very different. Mm-hmm. But um, you know, maybe someday uh, scientists will find out, you know, it, it, exactly, you know, what's going on when that kind of bilateral stimulation occurs. Mm-hmm. And we're just beginning to understand that now. Now, let's get back to your technique. Um, one of the things I found so fascinating about the technique was that um, you are very non-directive, yet... Yeah. There's a lot of similarity among the experiences that your different patients report. Yes, yes. As a matter of fact, um, most of IEDC therapy has to do with clearing the sadness, which I see as the core of grief, both grief and traumatic grief. And oh, could you could could you just uh, focus on that for a moment? I I found that fascinating too. You say that there are two core emotions, and yeah. then the others are kind of secondary. Expand yeah. on that. Okay, um, there are really two kinds of traumas, and one is when a person has a has the fear that somebody is going to get hurt or die, and those are fear traumas. The other are sadness traumas, and the only difference there is uh, somebody actually dies. Now, mo- many traumatic experiences have, have both components, but each need to be treated separately because they're two separate components. Um, now, in, in both the case of fear and sadness, there are many other associated emotions, um, and the most common are, are guilt and anger. And um, people generally use their guilt and anger to protect themselves from that painful core, you know, uh, from from reliving the the, the 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 fear of the trauma or the sadness associated with the loss in the trauma and so on. And I, and one of the most important points with IADC is I have found that if we d- directly address the core 
emotion and, and successfully process it, all that other stuff just fades away. Fascinating. Yeah, and uh, which lends uh, support to the idea that that we use our anger and our guilt as 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 a defense in some way. Mm-hmm. You know, what if he did that? What if I did that? You know, kind of what if? What if? And uh, and people can can stay in those outer layers for for their entire lives and never really get to the inner pain, which needs to be fully processed. And, and, and when I work with people, um, I see people for two 90-minute sessions, and they are the worst trauma and grief issues you can imagine, or they're be, even beyond what one can imagine. And two 90-minute sessions are enough. And the reason is, is because we go right after the core issue. Now, some people who have been treating grief for many years and so on say, well, grief is a very individual matter. And everybody needs to find their own way with grief. And my response to that is, yes, but we are all wired for sadness. Now, all of our sadness is very different from, um, uh, from each other because our relationships with the people we lost are very different. And so our, our sadness is very unique. It's very individual. But... If, if one is to find some peace with their loss, they have to process the sadness. Now, s- some people do a great job of pro- processing their sadness by doing various different things, um, but it can take a lifetime doing that. The advantage of doing um, using this bilateral stimulation that increases the, the brain's ability to heal itself um, when you address the sadness with these high-powered techniques, you can get through it real rapidly. Now, with EMDR, you you kind of lower the thermostat on the sadness, but then you go a step further with the IADC. So tell us what happens. Once, um, the, once it, the sadness subsides, and that sometimes happens in the first session, sometimes not until the second session, um, people feel an intense, um, uh, a great amount of relief. And people, it's interesting, people most often use the word peaceful. You know, after going through all this intense processing and they're crying and they're sobbing and they're shaking and I can, you know, and they uh, continue to move their eyes so we can get them through that. Um, um, once that stuff is processed, it's now it's now gone, or, or very much changed, and people say they feel very peaceful. At that point, another set of eye movements generally induces the ADC experience. However, I never say, okay, now I'm going to give you a set of eye movements, and I want you to imagine, you know, your deceased loved one. I would never say that. In other words, I would never suggest that. I would just give them another set of eye movements. I might say, pay, pay attention to that good, peaceful feeling you're having and just go wherever it takes you. And at that point, they naturally go into this, about 79% of the time, they naturally go into this ADC experience. Now, <clears throat> most people know that ADCs occur spontaneously in the general population. You don't need IADC always to have an ADC. Um, as a matter of fact, about 30% of the population have experienced 
um, uh, after-death communications on their own, sometimes when they're awake and sometimes when they're asleep, but they would describe them as very different from normal dreams. So what we're doing with IADC is we're getting that sadness out of the way which is blocking the experience. And I, I, think, I think that's a critical idea. And w once that sadness is processed and they're feeling good, they are then ready for the ADC experience. And even people who have spontaneous ADCs will tell, will tell you that they, they just sort of came out of the blue. They didn't happen at times when they were feeling intense sadness for their loss or at times they were really wanting some kind of connection. They, they, they don't happen at those times. They come out of the blue. And that's kind of the um, general philosophy that IADC uh, follows. Is you first process the sadness, and then um, additional eye movement sort of naturally allow, it allows people to have this very natural experience. Does that make sense? So uh, they go into this, um, this state, and they communicate with the the deceased um, who are associated with the, with their grief or trauma, right, right. what happens then? Well, um, first of all, um, people do this with their eyes closed, and it's a very private experience. I am not privy to what what's going on. It's a very people do this with their mind's eye, their mind's ear. You know, much of the communication comes across as telepathic. Um, so I'm not privy to I only find out about it when they open their eyes and tell me what just happened. Um, but what you report is that they often are smiling when they have their eyes closed, and then when they open their eyes, they, they are actually even joyous. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I know that the first time that happened to me, I, I was just absolutely amazed. And th that's when I thought my patient had hallucinated. And I, d I didn't know there was such a thing as ADC. Um, but yes, um, people are generally generally uh, radically changed at that moment. They, um, our research shows that um, um, people are, th their belief in the afterlife increases significantly. It's like near-death experiences. The people who have them uh, are, are very convinced by them. And, of course, they happen to very normal, health, psychologically healthy people. And, uh, um, but what you, what you report in your book uh, and, and reading all the different case studies, mm -hmm. uh, one of the uniform reports is that they are convinced that the person is now okay. Yeah. That they that um, whatever their worries were for that person or their guilt about the person, that person no you know reassures the individual Absolutely. that it's all right. As, as a matter of fact, that is the main message. You know, if a if a woman loses a son, I, I recently worked with a case like that. It was just an awful you know painful story to listen to. And, and her son comes to her in the ADC, and it's like, Mom, look, I'm okay. I'm fine. I want you to be okay now, too. I'm fine. And then, you know, the son kind of started dancing around and uh, to show his mom how happy he really was. 
but the, 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 they all say that I'm okay, I'm okay, and their only concern is the suffering that their survivors are going through, and they want their survivors to know that they're okay, and that they can be okay too. Mm-hmm. Now, when when the mother hears that from the son, mom, I I want you to be okay. Um, that's that's the most important person that the mother needed to hear from. And, you know, any psychologist or anybody else saying that, you know, you need to be okay, your son would want you to be okay, it isn't the same thing as the son saying, Mom, look, I'm okay. And, and, and the more general message they get is that, and by the way, everything is okay. It's all good. It's all good. Mm. But... There's also, um, I don't want anybody who's thinking about suicide to uh, run off and commit suicide because everything is so good over there. Because people who suicide um, have extra issues that they have to deal with. And the, the primary thing is if you suicide, you're going to hurt some people. It, you're going to hurt your family, but if you're estranged from your family, you're going to hurt your you know, your therapist, you're going to hurt people who knew you at work, you're going to hurt people. And the only judgment that occurs in a near-death experience is, 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 is how you affected other people. And committing suicide hurts other people. And so, mm-hmm. it, so it's not like you, you, you can't commit suicide and get away from all your issues. It's, it's not a ticket out. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, you still have to uh, have the life review. Mm -hmm. Right, you have to deal with the pain you've caused in other people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. One of the points you made was that conventional uh, grief therapy um, focuses on kind of desensitizing you or, or removing you from the source of the grief, whereas the IADC actually enables you to reconnect to the person, and it's this reconnection that actually heals it. You know, it was really um, kind of the older ideas in grief um, go all the way back to Sigmund Freud. And, of course, most of psychology does. But, you know, Freud's idea was that um, you had to um, disconnect from your lost loved one and only after you completely and emotionally disconnect from your lost loved one can you then form new attachments in life and therefore get on with life. And there's been a lot of research, and I mention it in my book. There's a, um, a great book called Continuing Bonds, where researchers from all over the world who work with grief generally reported that people who maintain some kind of connection with their deceased loved one and and maintain that bond actually do better in the grieving process. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the whole idea of, of cutting yourself off and trying to forget the person who died and who you happen to love, to trying to put that person out of your life just uh, never works or doesn't mm-hmm. work very often. Um, the, the whole idea is to reconnect and to establish, instead of a painful connection, i.e. the sadness, you establish this, you know, you reestablish this positive loving connection. 
you know, a lot of people who come to see me, they say, well, I don't want to give up my pain and my sadness because that's my only connection to my loved one. And my response to that is, well, we are not going to sever your connection. We're simply going to replace your painful connection with a very positive loving connection. And isn't that what your loved one would want? Yes, I remember you wrote that the bond between the living is love, but when a loved one dies, the bond is pain. Mm -hmm. That's so true. Right, right. But it doesn't have to be that way. That's the good good news. Mm -hmm. That's the good news. And there are now IEDC therapists all over the world. Um, I once uh, at a lecture said there are now IEDC therapists on every continent. And somebody said, you have IEDC therapist in the Antarctic? <laughs> I, said, oh, I, I said, oh, I forgot that was a continent. No, not in the Antarctic. Um, but it's, grow, it's growing rapidly all over the world. We're getting research um, uh, coming out, and a couple studies have recently been published. And our goal is to make IEDC a mainstreamed approach. And to do that, we need science. And, but we're making good progress on, on, on that side of things. There's always this uh, kind of creative tension between um, empiricism and, and uh, scientific, the scientific method. Yeah. Yeah. But you were showing with your, your VA patients, 98% were going into these IADCs and having remarkable results. Right. That's astonishing. Yeah. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry to say, however, the 90% didn't hold up. Oh. And it didn't hold up for a couple reasons. Um, right now, um, the success rate in terms of inducing an ADC is between 75 and 79%. But that's um, still so far above traditional um, results that yeah. it, it's yeah. astonishing. Yeah. And, and our research shows that even the 25% or so who do not have an ADC or an induced ADC during therapy, those people also do much better um, because we have uh, processed um, their sadness. Their, their profound sadness has changed, and it's now represented differently in their brains. Um, so even people who don't have an ADC feel a tremendous amount of relief after two sessions. I can only imagine what it was like when you first approached your colleagues to say that I'm having good results by having my patients talk to the dead. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't word it quite that way, <laughs> um, although uh, your point's well taken. It, it was more like um, my patients are telling me they're talking to the dead. And... Uh, um, and actually, when I first started approaching other people, I mean, I, I wasn't uh, um, considered a, a, you know, a nutball or anything. So pe- people respected me as a good clinician. So when I approached other people, um, they listened. And, and then they even started trying, trying, uh, trying it on their own. And that was one of the biggest breakthroughs when all the feedback I got was um, that they were able to successfully uh, induce ADCs just just as well as I had been doing. So um, I have no special powers, 
Um, there's something about the technique itself that's very powerful. And um, the people I train, and one of our research studies shows that, um, that the people I train generally do just as well as I do. It's the procedure itself that works. Well, there is a lot more um, reporting in the literature, and, and I'm talking about the popular literature and the press, about people having um, after-death communication. There's there's a, a movie that's just uh, launched, uh, I think, this past week about some little boy who, who talked to heaven. Uh, Eben Alexander, the neurosurgeon, yeah. uh, with his book, um, and uh, and I know you've spoken to Raymond Moody. Um, do do you feel that there's a lot more receptivity to this approach now than there would have than there was ten years ago? Oh yeah, I think um, certainly over the last ten years we've made a lot of progress. Um, although there are still a lot of people holding out. Um, I uh, um, you know. Many materialistic scientists sort of have a knee-jerk response as, oh, this can't be true. There must be some brain mechanism that's causing these kind of experiences. And every now and then we read in the newspapers that some um, psychologist or, or scientist somewhere has come up with you know, some, something that's going on in the brain that explains away near-death experiences. And, you know, and we've had so many of those, and none of them have really held up. And at the very best, they only exp explain one little tiny slice of a near-death experience and not the whole thing. And, you know, I, and even, even though I stay away from getting into the debate whether this proves anything or not, you know, and proof is not really a scientific term. I mean, that's really more of a mathematical term. So in science, we don't prove anything. You know, I, I would say that um, the afterlife life hypothesis is probably the best hypothesis we have going. It just explains the data better than um, all this other stuff. And, and the other part of this is, you know, the, um, religions all over the world are very, you know, entrenched in their own beliefs and and specific their specific ideas about how this is supposed to happen and not happen. You know, so... Um, you know, religion generally hasn't glommed onto this, and you know, and many scientists haven't either. Um, but nevertheless, um, we have a lot of people who who are having these kind of experiences or coming forward, and. Um, um, well, I, I see what your technique as being in two stages. One is EMDR, which is a bit far out, con, you know, compared to conventional psychotherapy. But um, let, me, let me just say real quick, EMDR is now considered a mainstream evidence-based therapy all over the world. Mm -hmm. Now, IADC hasn't reached that status, but EMDR itself is... Um, it's been abundantly researched, and there's much scientific support for EMDR. And what kind of I, penetration has it made into the therapeutic community? Well, it, it's made a, a huge uh, penetration in the therapeutic community, and again, all over the world. Um, it's now considered uh, one of the evidence-based treatments that um, are... It's now, even though um, people in the VA system um, kind of fought, the people at the top of the VA sort of fought its inclusion, but EMDR is now recognized 
as an evidence-based, scientifically-based uh, therapy for guys with PTSD. And PTSD is a hot issue right now, and it's nice to see that EMDR is considered, um, uh, you know, it's a fully accepted treatment for PTSD. If you were to compare the results from uh, straight EMDR with uh, EMDR plus IADC, mm-hmm. what kind of improvement do you get in your clinical outcome? Well, um, that's a good question, and to answer that very specifically, we would need to do a, you know, a design study um, and do all the statistics on it and so on with you know, appropriate measures and so on. Um, but I can tell you that um, I've trained uh, probably three to 400 people in IADC, and I require that people first get um, EMDR trained before they come and get IADC trained. And I can tell you without exception that every therapist I have trained in IADC has told me that IADC works much more efficiently than standard EMDR. Mm-hmm. So, w- w- we have a lot of clinical evidence um, uh, to support the idea that it makes EMDR even better, and certainly it works more rapidly, but, um, and of course EMDR doesn't include the therapeutic experience of the ADC, mm-hmm. and our research shows that even over and above uh, processing that core sadness, an ADC an induced ADC also um, results in people feeling even more better, and th- th- they report a higher degree of, of relief and uh, satisfaction. Um. Now, you write that some patients have had both NDEs and IADCs, and they believe that they're tapping into the same source. They're convinced that yep. their experiences are authentic communications with dead people. Yes. Yeah, what do you um, think? Well, um, I think that the people we should listen to are people who have had these experiences. Um, I, I give a lot of talks and so on, and, and or interviews, and people say, "Well, doctor, what you know? What, what do you think? Do you think these are real experiences or not?" And I always say, "Why are you asking me? I'm only a psychologist." <laughs> <laughs> What now, you some of to, your colleagues report. What, what you need to do is go ask the people who have had these experiences because only when you have had the experience yourself is, is your opinion truly informed. Indeed. And you report in your book that some of your colleagues actually shared the IADC with the patient. What do you think was happening there? Well, um, yeah, that was an extremely unusual finding, but it seemed to be very consistent with um, some people. But the way this all started was that I had an, uh, an intern who had, knew how to do IADC. I had trained him, and he was watching me work with the patient, and I was inducing an ADC. And for some reason, my intern closed his eyes and gave himself eye movement and was able to then eavesdrop in on my patient's private ADC experience. So they actually shared the same experience. Now, one of two things is going on. Number one, these experiences are objectively real, 
and that's why two people can see the exact same thing. Or somehow my patient was telepathically transferring his experience to my intern. But either way, something very remarkable was going on there that needs further research. And hopefully we will do more on that in the near future. Didn't you um, have an institute set up in Germany named after you? Well, yeah. Um, that, that wasn't my doing, I promise. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, no false um, modesty here. I, uh, um, I, I trained a woman, a psychologist from Germany, Juliana Grothuis, and um, years ago, and she came to the United States and got trained, and then she went back to Germany and spread uh, the good news about IEDC all over Germany, which then resulted in me making regular trips, or, and my colleagues making regular trips out there to train large groups of people. So um, IEDC has really taken off in Germany, and... Um, uh, Juliana, um, my main person there, uh, established and founded the Allen Botkin Institute in Saarbrücken, Germany. And she's sort of taken it and, uh, and, and run with it. And I'm very grateful to her and her work. Do you think there's more receptivity in Europe to, uh, I guess, the paranormal, you would say? You know, I don't know. You know, people ask me that, and I don't know. I, I don't really have a sense of it. Uh, you know, the uh, German therapists there say, oh, you know, in Germany, we're much more restrictive on who gets to do what, and it's actually more difficult to do there. And, you know, but at the same time, IEDC is growing rapidly there. Mm-hmm. And, and by the way, it's also um, growing rapidly in um, Italy right now, and France is, is right behind. Um, but in, in, I think what happened with Germany is I just lucked out in the sense that um, when Juliana when went back, um, she hooked up with one of the most famous psychologists in all of Germany, and when he sort of put his stamp of approval on it, it just sort of took off from there. Mm-hmm. So what do you need to be um, an IADC therapist? Well, first of all, you need to um, complete the first weekend of EMDR training. And to, to be eligible for EMDR training, you have to be recognized by your state as an independent provider of mental health services. So that's not just a psychiatrist and psychologist. That's also licensed social workers, uh, licensed professional counselors, um, people who have a master's degree in psychiatric nursing are eligible. So um, if, as long as you're an independent provider of mental health services, you're eligible for EMDR. And then when you, after you complete the first weekend of EMDR, you're eligible for my IADC training, which is a one-day, which is a one-day thing. I wish that I could write a book that where I could tell people how to do this on themselves. Um, I think that would be unethical. Um, IADC and EMDR are both extremely safe if, if they're done by people who have enough background and training. As a matter of fact, we've, we have not had one adverse reaction to IADC. Um, however, if, if you don't really understand the EMDR or, or, or certain um, uh, psychiatric emergencies that may arise during the course of treatment. Um, 
it's possible that real harm could be caused. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I don't mean to be elitist and restrictive, um, but um, it, I, I want to be safe. My, my first ethical duty is not cause harm. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, you, you also wrote somewhere that you thought that it would be unethical not to use this technique, knowing that it was available. So I assume you're addressing um, your passionate call to your colleagues. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it, it, it's too bad when I, when I hear stories about how people are trying to work through their grief and they're avoiding their sadness or they're doing things that, that really um, don't help them move along. Um, now, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, people who do not use IADC are engaging in malpractice. I would never say that. But um, And um, most grief therapies or nearly all grief therapies help to some degree. And um, so, you know, I, I, I don't want to be too harsh on folks. I just um, would hope that um, the people would open their eyes and, um, and find out that we do now have methods that um, really, in fact, mm-hmm. do help people and in rapid fashion. Do you have a, a favorite case study that you could kind of close with as an illustration? Well, um, the, the one I usually mention is my very first accidental ADC. Would you like to hear that? Sure. I was working uh, with a man I call Fan. He was a Vietnam veteran. Um, when he was in Vietnam, he became close, very close to a an orphaned uh, 10-year-old girl named Lee who was uh, kind of helping out at their base camp and so on. And uh, Sam um, had plans to adopt Lee and bring her back to the States with him. In fact, he had even called his wife back home in Chicago and asked her if that was okay, and she said yes. Um, Of course, Sam didn't realize that the U.S. government would not have allowed him to do that, but he didn't know that at the time. But but anyway, one day, orders came down that all the orphaned uh, children at the base camp um, were to be shipped off to a distant village where there was a Catholic orphanage. So one day they were loading all the kids up, about 15, uh, 12 or 15, I forget, on the, uh, a flatbed truck to be taken away. And Lee and Sam were hugging each other and crying and saying goodbye. And Sam was promising Lee that um, uh, he, he would find her and, uh, and bring her back to the States and he wouldn't forget her and so on. So anyway, but anyway, right around the time they got all the kids up on the truck, shots rang out and bullets were zipping over the truck. And the the soldiers who were helping uh, put the kids up on the truck pulled them down to the uh, ground as quickly as they could to get them out of the way of the shooting. And the shooting had stopped. They had gotten the sniper somehow. And as they were putting the kids back up on the truck, Sam didn't see Lee. And he went around to the back of the truck and saw her lying face down in the mud. And she had a spot of blood on her back, and when he turned her over, he saw that um, the bullet that entered her back had blown out her whole front torso, and she was dead. 
and Sam held her lifeless body, and eventually the other soldiers had to kind of pry him apart, and they buried Lee and so on. But when Sam told this story to me in, in our session, he literally, um, or almost literally, fell out of his chair. He had to grab onto the handles. He was sobbing and shaking so violently. But um, I encouraged him to stay with me, keep keep your eyes moving, Sam, stay with me, Sam, and we, and that... And then we finally processed that awful, painful sadness in the memories of her bloody body, uh, bloody body, and so on. Um, and then I gave Sam another set of eye movements, and that's when he closed his eyes and started smiling, and he opened his eyes, and Sam was absolutely convinced that Lee's spirit had come to him. She came to him as a as a, a much older um, young woman with long black hair and a beautiful white dress and surrounded by this beautiful white light. And Lee privately told Sam, um, no, Sam told Lee, I love you, Lee, and she responded, I love you too, Sam, and she reached out and gave Sam a hug. And, um, and, and, they, and the, the experiencers actually feel the physical sensation yeah. of the hug. As a matter of fact, yeah, you, um, you, you did a good job studying my book because Sam then said, I remember now, Sam then said, I could actually feel her arms around me. I could feel the touch of her arms. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I think the point. other thing that, that uh, is generally reported is that now the beautiful picture of her smiling replaces Absolutely. the other right. one. Right. He, he could no longer, he no longer had a, a, a good image of her lifeless and bloodied body. And every time he thought of Lee, he just saw this beautiful woman surrounded by light thanking him. And, uh, and he, in fact, I saw Sam, uh, years after that experience. And I, and I said, hey, you know, Sam, how, how you doing with Lee and that whole thing we went through? He goes, you know, he, and he said, it changed my life. It said, I, I, the only thing I can see is how beautiful Lee is, and I can feel how much we love each other. It was really amazing. What a lovely story to finish on. Yeah. Um, let me just Al- add one more thing. Yeah. Just one more thing. Please go to www. I was going to ask you about your websites, of course. Oh, please. Um, healingafterthewar.org. Healingafterthewar.org. Um, PTSD is a hot topic these days. And we've got something for these PTSD and most deserving veterans. And we have uh, um, some work done on a documentary, maybe an Internet series that addresses those issues. So healingafterthewar.org. And my main website is induced-adc.com. Great. Dr. Alan Botkin, author of Induced Afterdeath Communication, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Miriam. I enjoyed it. Next week, our guest is Dan Underbrink, talking about his somewhat controversial new book called Judas of Nazareth. If you missed any of our show or just want to browse the archives, go to our website, ncreview.com. That's N for Nancy, C for Charlie, review.com. Well, now we're going to close with our track of the week called Possibility by Donna Michael.
from her album Out of the Darkness. Based in Nashville, Tennessee, Donna is a highly regarded motivational speaker, radical forgiveness coach, ordained minister, spiritual counselor, and internationally known recording artist. Her vision is to offer a message and music that unites all of us and divides none of us. Her website is DonnaMichael.com. Donna is a member of the Positive Music Association, a wonderful group of musicians who use music not only to entertain, but to make a positive difference in people's lives and in the world. Their website is positivemusicassociation.com. I hope you'll join us next week for more enlightening information and inspiration. Until then, I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs>